If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's interesting to be here with James Meek. Before this book, I only read his, uh, his, you know, a few essays and a lot of his fiction because obviously he's predominantly a fiction writer in terms of uh, book publishing. So I suppose the first thing I'm kind of interested in is this book. Obviously, is comprised of uh, an introduction and six long-form pieces of writing about different public services that have slowly been privatised or part privatised. So. What I want to know, James, is how, how did it come about? Did you find yourself writing about one or two services and then just became interested in the subject, or was it, was it more planned than that? It was a, a gradual process. The first piece in, in here was originally written um, 10 years ago about rail track. And when I came to put these pieces together in the book, I thought that when I when I had to update everything, that this, this piece would probably be too out of date to, to use um, and that everything would have changed. Uh, but then that, that wasn't the case. I, I, uh, I just had to change a few, a few things and, and really it hasn't moved on as, as one might have hoped. Things haven't really, things haven't got better. In many ways, they've, they've got worse. I suppose that the genesis really goes back quite a long way and I think the fact that I, when I was... Uh, in my late 20s, I left Britain just as... I suppose, I mean, it was, it was the end of Thatcherism in the sense that Margaret Thatcher had already left power in 1991. But the sort of... The, the arrow that Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson and Nicholas Ridley and all the other early privatisers, they sort of shot in the air. It turned out it was still travelling and travelling around the world. Um, and it is travelling still. And we don't know where it's going to land. When I first arrived in the Soviet Union a few weeks before it collapsed, I, I saw my, my immediate reaction was, so this is socialism in action. What a disaster. And I saw how badly the, the communists had managed the country for so long. I saw the, the housing shortages, uh, the, the decay... Uh, the, the corruption, the greed, the selfishness. And it was only gradually, as that whole thing fell apart and a new system came into its place, which was very much inspired by, by Western models as they were then prevailing, uh, that I, I began to realise uh, how uh, corrupting in its way this alternative sort of model of, of doing things was, was. And when I came back to, to Britain, I, I didn't think of it in a conscious way, but I think it very much informed my, my way of, of looking at things. I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not a, I'm not a trained economist at all. I've never studied economics. But it seems to me that there are two ways of approaching economics. One is, is from um, a, a theoretical point of view uh, by reading the the experts, the, the specialists, the academics, um, and, and having a, an overview of, of the way things are, the way things work. Uh, but there is another approach where you, you fix on some 
strange change that you perceive, and you, you just follow that, you follow that thread. And I think it was seeing the, uh, the extremity of, of change in Ukraine and Russia in the, in the 1990s, uh, and, and seeing these, these extraordinary moments where a factory, almost as if some bomb had exploded inside it, uh, just blasting everything away and leaving the, the building intact. Um, seeing that extremity of change, it made me think about the, the violence that policy could, um, could exercise on, on a society. Uh, and so perhaps it was easier for me when I came back here in the early 2000s, uh, even though the changes here are much more s- are gradual, much slower, uh, I could sort of see the before and the after, and it was as if I, I could see these, these explosions happening um, in, in slow motion. One thing that particularly struck me going through this was just how much a lot of these uh, long essays come across more like stories than actual reports. How do you kind of weigh that up, like the, the, like the, the, the tension between wanting to tell a kind of quite arresting story and actually trying to get across the nuts and bolts of, of the problem? Well, yeah, I, I freely admit that I, I did look for human stories. I, I was never, I still am not sure, and I was never quite sure. Every time I, I land one of these great slabs of text um, on the desk of the London Review of Books, um, I'm, I'm always a bit surprised that they don't throw it back in my face and say, yeah, your mind, 9,000 words, 13,000 words on, on housing, please. Um, there are other things going on in the world, you know. Uh, so it, it's always been my concern that these are um, potentially quite dry subjects. Um, when I say to people, I'm writing about privatization, um, then their eyes do not light up. Um, when a few, a few years after I, a few months after I, I quit The Guardian, I, I spoke to the... Uh, the editor, the then editor of Weekend magazine, and she said, we'd really like you to write for us. Um, what, what are you interested in? What would you like to write about? Uh, and I said, the politics of food and privatization. And there was a long, long silence. <laughs> and I like to think the silence was mostly for the privatization and not for the, the politics of food. So yes, uh, it's always been my hope that without distorting the, the story that I'm trying to tell in terms of, of the change in society... Um, that I could um, make it a good story as well. So in, in the, the health story, I felt that by telling the, the story of this, um, this man, John Charnley, who uh, invented uh, the artificial hip, mm-hmm. made, it, made it what it is today, uh, I could have this, this arc of this one particular aspect of the National Health Service that would reflect the changes in, in society and, and, the, and the changes of policy throughout the NHS's history. And, um, but there have been times as well when it's almost as if the, the entity itself has been a kind of uh, hero. I mean, it was, it was, I suppose, although it was, it was a very sad story, that the, the tale of that postwoman who I met in the Netherlands who, who had uh, 90 boxes of undelivered mail piled up in her, in, her, um, in her hallway and kitchen and everywhere else. You know, that, that was a story within a story. But strangely, I, I felt, I don't know how it came across to people reading it, but the story of the post office, there's something about the post office. Mm-hmm. It's not like that rather 
amorphous entity of, of the national grid or, or the power stations or, or the water system. There's something about the post office. It's like a little, little hero in its, in its own right. Um, so it's, it's not always been necessary to, um, to try and push a, um, an individual story, uh, project that on, onto uh, the story of a, of, of a, uh, a network or, a, or an industry. And, and with the housing story, there was that possibility of, of taking a, an individual story of, of Pat Quinn, the, the woman who is suffering from the effect of the bedroom tax, but also this story of Bertolt Lubetkin, the, the communist architect whose own dreams uh, of creating a great people's architecture in this country were so repeatedly and, and finally dashed. So in your opinion, and from the responses you get, which has been the story that either stuck with people the most or kind of shocked them the most when it was first published? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I hesitate to answer because I, I feel people do respond to these stories about individuals in trouble. Mm. And no matter how interested they may think of themselves as being, in the big picture and theory. Um, people do respond to these um, stories about people in trouble. So I, I, when I look back, it was certainly the one about the post office and the one about housing, which started out with the story of, um, I, I don't name her in the, in the book, but I can name her now, Sally Menz, the, um, the transvestite um, postwoman um, with her 90 boxes of undelivered mail, um, and, and the story of Pat Quinn, the... Um, the woman with the bedroom tax issue. But I don't think it was just because of that. I think, particularly with the housing piece, I was very surprised with um, what a strong reaction that caused, how much feedback there was, how much people seemed to be talking about it. I'm still surprised. But I suppose it's partly because everyone has a house. Uh, it's, uh, and everyone in this country, whether they like it or not, is... Uh, is, I wouldn't say obsessed, but concerned about um, the way things are with, uh, with houses. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, and, and when I wrote the piece, uh, I realised how we talk about housing distorting the economy, but in fact, uh, it kind of is the economy. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned that everyone has a house, and that might be a reason why it struck a chord, but obviously everybody else... You know, drinks water, uses electricity, uses a health service. Most people use posts and use rail. How much of this, how much of these essays was due to you wanting to kind of show people exactly what was going on and how much of it was just your own personal interest in, in digging a bit further into, into things? Both. Uh, and I think the, um, as, as you sort of hinted at earlier on, as I went on with, these, mm. with this sort of theme, uh, the, the bigger picture did emerge uh, and I began to see what I feel are meta privatizations beyond the actual individual privatizations what we're talking about here really is a set of networks which did not really exist when which certainly didn't exist when um, Adam Smith was writing uh, and which were only really coming into being when people like uh, like like Marx um, and, um, and, and the, the economists of the Austrian school were writing. These networks that have 
these common characteristics that society demands, expects that everyone will have access to them. And they are reliant on technology. They are very complex. So they must be planned in enormous detail. They require vast investment to build. They must always work and never fail for everyone. Now, those are a very, very specific set of characteristics, but they are dominant in these now privatized industries. These, the, the process of creating these networks uh, and destroying them is not yet finished. We're seeing in our lifetime the death of one, the Universal Post Service, uh, and we're seeing the creation of another, this idea that everyone must have access to broadband internet that is now coming into being. We are now with broadband internet where we were with water in the early 19th century. I don't know if you know this, but um, now in the job centers, there are no jobs. They're now called, they're not called job centers anymore, they're called job center plus. And job center plus is job center minus the jobs. Uh, if, you, if you go to um, a job center and say, yes, we'll help you get a job, but you have to look online for a job. You have to have access to the internet. It's not possible to function as an unemployed person without the internet because uh, you have to show that you're applying for, is it seven jobs a day or seven jobs a week? Um, uh, if you I don't, think it's ten a day now. Yeah, if you don't do that, then you don't get your, you don't get your dole, dole. And the only way you can do that is, is on the internet. So it's become another um, essential network. So then the question becomes, how are these networks, electricity, uh, transport, healthcare, uh, education, gas, uh, all these networks, how are they going to be financed? How are they going to be planned? How are they going to be built? The British have come up with, with the wrong answer, um, which is that um, they're not really going to be planned. It'll all work out somehow. We'll intervene in an emergency manner uh, to sort things out at great expense if things are going wrong. Um, and we'll make sure that um, all the uh, profits from investment in these networks um, go, first of all, to uh, shareholders in this country, but now, as it turns out, uh, to a very large extent, to, uh, to people overseas. But there's another aspect to this, uh, which is what I mean when I talk about a meta-privatization, and that's the privatization of the taxation system. There are two ways of funding these networks by uh, having everyone pay for them. One is, the, one is by, uh, by uh, subsidizing them from income tax, uh, which is what used to happen, very broadly speaking, and not in all cases, but in many cases. And that's what still happens with the health system, with the NHS. It is funded from taxation. In other words, leaving aside the, the problem of... of um, of VAT and, uh, and, and sin taxes, um, if you just look at income tax, the rich pay more uh, and the poor pay less. But that is not the case when it comes to the privatized networks. They're all paid for on a flat fee basis. Um, if you look at electricity, for example, if you um, pay uh, £1,000 a year um, for your electricity bill, uh, and you earn £10,000 a year, that is 10% of your entire income. That is effectively a 10% tax. You have no choice but to, to pay that. You have to have electricity. 
you might have a bigger house and use more electricity if you are a rich person. You might pay £2,000 a year. But if you're earning £100,000 a year, that's only 2% of your, of your income. So if you spread that out across all the privatized utilities, you then have the implementation of a poll tax, which is much, much broader uh, and much more severe on the lower levels of society than uh, the poll tax ever was. How much of... When, when, when you were researching these, how much of this privatisation did you feel was kind of deliberately very, very calculated and how much of it was just a series of quite hapless but very greedy people in, and a sort of domino effect? I mean, when I, when I read the Post piece about TNT seemed very kind of like vulture-esque, whereas um, when it came to rail track, I think I remember the, the scene on Christmas Eve with like, consultants just throwing together any idea and not realising it was going to get taken up. I'm certainly um, a believer in, in the, the greed um, and the individual uh, and the, uh, the, the, the conspiracy which is never spoken, um, but is simply uh, a conspiracy of desire and intention um, rather than a plan. Um, and um, you do see people um, just, just always um, managing to persuade themselves that what they are doing is, is virtuous. Um, and uh, it's very seldom that people, um, certainly in, in conversation, will sort of face up to their own role. And it's, it's difficult sometimes. Uh, it's, I try to avoid making harsh moral judgments on people. Um, I mean, if, if you read the, the water chapter, um, you'll remember that it ends with me meeting this trades union leader um, who has a, a beautiful house, um, a beautiful life, really. It was just everything was perfect. The golden sunshine, the, the Lexus in the garage. I think it was a Lexus, maybe I'm exaggerating. Anyway, he certainly gold-painted the car. Um, and and his, his little Jack grandchildren in their beautiful red blazers playing on the lawn, the little fountain gurgling away. Um, and he said, uh, I said, nice house. And he said, yes, I, I, I thank my lucky stars. I, I retired when they still had final salary pension. Um, but he fought against privatization. He was very much against, don't change it, nationalization is the way, a, a national industry, you can't privatize water, it's a natural monopoly. He fought, he fought, he fought, and then he took the shares. Um, and as did all but, I think, I can't remember the exact number, um, I think it was about 150 postmen uh, did not take the shares they were offered. Um, so, yes, it's, it's harsh of all the people who have been involved in this to pick out the trades unionists um, because there were so many uh, who worked with so much great, greater intent. Um, but then, again, Stephen Littlechild, the mastermind of electricity privatization, uh, who came up with this, um, this idea of... Um, uh, RPI plus, where um, it does not matter how much they earn, the electricity companies when they're privatized, it doesn't matter how much they earn because um, it will just make them more efficient. The more they have, the more they will want. Um, so we will gain. Um, you know, how well that worked out. Uh, but he was not, he wasn't rich. Um, he, was, he was a geek. 
as were many of the people in the early days of privatization who provided the sort of um, intellectual heft to, uh, to the, the civil servants um, and business people who actually carried it out. Um, he, he was a geek. He, he liked uh, uh, experimenting. Uh, and he just thought, um, wow, I've, I've got a whole country now to experiment with. Um, I'm out of the classroom. This is amazing. Um, and, and he did at least have the decency to admit that uh, it wasn't a great result for privatization uh, of the British electricity industry, that part of it was then renationalized by the French. So, obviously, a lot, a lot of this book involves kind of your knowledge and travels around the rest of the globe. Have you found anywhere or any sector that privatization has worked really, really well? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fair question. Um, and um, I kind of hoped that, um, that somebody might be really offended by this book and uh, point out uh, that privatization has worked really well here or there. Uh, at one point in the introduction, um, I, I went back and worked out everything that belonged to the state um, back before, before it all began. Before Thatcher came along, and it was an immensely long list. You know, there were there were ferry companies and um, ports and so on. Things that people have forgotten now were ever mm. owned by owned by the state. But when you go through them one by one, uh, it's surprising how often you find that yes, they may be doing better now commercially. And you know, I should say at this point that I am not in favour of nationalising mm. um, all these industries. But if you look at Rolls-Royce, for example, Rolls-Royce is, is the great uh, success story of British industry. It's the, it's the great champion. It, it, uh, directly or indirectly, it is basically 1% of the British economy. Every time you see some new plane, some new Boeing or some new Airbus taking off, it will get nowhere without these engines that are made in places like, like Derby. Now, that is a private company, but it would not exist if it had not been rescued by Edward Heath in the early 1970s. This dogma of the private knows best is one of the great enemies uh, of, of success in this country today. Dieter Helm said about, about, um, about electricity that uh, it's amazing that anyone could think that this was this should be a private industry or that this should be a state industry when it is clearly a political industry. And that's where you come back again to this uh, notion of, of networks that um, if it has to be for everyone, if it has to be planned on a timescale five, ten years longer than any one government, uh, if it can never stop working for a moment, uh, then... There has to be an element of, of state control in it, uh, or state supervision much greater than these feeble, captured uh, regulators that we, that we have now. But it, it goes beyond that as well. It goes beyond that to companies like Rolls-Royce, um, which have benefited from uh, state help in the past uh, and, and may do again, and can't simply be consigned to... Uh, to the wilderness of, of competition. I mean, the trouble with selling the idea of competition 
uh, as a patriotic thing is, what if you lose? <laughs> and that is what's happened over and over again to British industry. Mm. It lost the competition. So, obviously we come back to an election, and the Labour Party make very occasional, very, very quiet noises about renationalising uh, the rail. Do you think it's something we'll ever see, the, and, and any part of these industries being brought back into public con- uh, control, or is it something we can only see with a massive crisis in one of them? It doesn't have to be as uh, blunt um, as nationalisation. And, of course, the idea that, oh, um, the left wants to, pro- wants to nationalise this or that, that, that's the straw man that they put up, as if there's, there's this binary that these are the only two possible forms of, of ownership. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, there are many other ways of, of running an enterprise. Um, Scottish Water is a public organization. Uh, it does not, it's a non-profit trust. Uh, and uh, there is more investment going into water in Scotland than there is in, into water in England. Uh, they don't pay dividends externally. Their debt uh, is lower they can borrow money more cheaply. Um, it's a natural monopoly. It's not difficult, really. Um, instead of which, we are paying um, the pensions of millions of Canadians and Australians who own our water, or, or um, a Hong Kong billionaire, um, or uh, this or that uh, private equity company. Um, so it's not necessary for the state to swoop in buy out these owners and take control. And there may be circumstances, uh, and, and this is where I guess I sound like less of a socialist, there may be circumstances where um, you, you can put something out to tender. Mm. Um, you can find somebody to run something uh, rather than uh, actually having the state run the whole thing. But that doesn't mean that it has to belong lock, stock and barrel to, um, to people registered in Grand Cayman. Um, and I, th- I think it would be better if it wasn't. Uh, I think it's good that the, uh, the Labour Party has come up with a, this idea of freezing electricity prices. You know, it's, it's a little bit lame in the sense that it's rather like the Tories coming up with um, right to buy, um, or, or rather um, help to buy, um, as a sort of pathetic echo of, of right to buy. Um, the freezing of electricity prices is a little bit of an echo of the, um, the, the windfall tax mm. that um, Labour came up with back in the 1990s. But still, it shakes things up. It shows that, uh, that nothing is forever. Um, I think one of the interesting things about what's happening now with the... Um Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. The Scotland debate, of course, I was, <laughs> I was always going to mention this at some point. Uh, you can't help it. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Scotland debate uh, at the moment, the, the sort of Scotland panic, I suppose, would be a better way of putting it, uh, is that it sort of shows what might happen if a radical reforming government 
came to power in this country. Uh, there would be the same, um, on a much larger sort of international scale, there would be the same, you can't do that um, attitude. Uh, and um, I think it, it will be very difficult for Scotland um, post-yes if they do take a radical path. Um, I think it will be difficult for them anyway, but particularly difficult if they take a radical path, but they will get over it. Um, and, and I think uh, the same would be true of, um, of a British radical progressive government if, if it tried to bring in counters to this um, private obsession. Um, but I think it has to start with an attitude, uh, namely that uh, the private sector doesn't always know best, uh, that there's no reason uh, to denigrate constantly the work of your own employees, which is what the government does, um, and uh, constantly stress that they're, they're laboring under this burden of being in the private sector, the private sector, and we'll, we'll privatize you as soon as possible, chaps, um, don't worry. Um, to get rid of that, and to address this question of taxation, there is no reason why, um, it seems to me, uh, there is no reason why uh, they cannot cut VAT um, and raise income tax. Mm -hmm. They will not be, the overall burden of taxation stays the same. They will simply be making, it will be a tax cut for the poor and a tax rise for, for the rich. Um, and if you then extend that attitude towards this whole range of stealth taxes that we now have um, in electricity, in, um, in, in, in gas, in, in water, uh, and so on, then, um, then you might be getting somewhere. Mm -hmm. Scotland's actually going to be my next question, so I'll go ahead oh, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, what, what I find particularly interesting about uh, the last week or so in, 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 the, in the referendum campaign is, um, I mean, often we see politicians threaten and say, well, if we, do, if we follow X policy, bankers will leave, business will leave. But I think this is the first time, especially in my lifetime, that I've actually come across actual businesses like the Royal Bank of Scotland, etc., threatening to leave themselves. Um, you know, obviously we've seen Jim Davidson and Phil Collins do it, but who cares? Um, so, I mean, but do, you, but, do you, but do you think the actual, actually having like a, a business or the private sector say, we will leave, has actually bolstered the yes vote? Do you think that level of kind of open greed has swayed the other way for them? Well, I, I, I don't know because I'm, I'm not in Scotland and <laughs> I, uh, I mean, the, the circle of people I talk to there is, is, is quite small um, and, and they're just sort of freaking out <laughs> um, or, or giddy with excitement uh, and, and details like that I think are sort of below their radar. I mean, there, there might be a reckoning for the Royal Bank of Scotland after, um, a, after the vote uh, and I think a lot of people understand that with the banks... It's quite a, a technical mm. point that they're simply re-registering their headquarters down, down south. Um, but that's another absurd thing about um, the, uh, what I'm talking about in the book, um, that these are enterprises which cannot move. You cannot um, dismantle, well, you could, I suppose, I suppose you could dismantle a nuclear power station and sort of ship it off to France on a <laughs> boat, but I can't really see that happening. And when, when the head of British Gas, or Centrica as it's called now, says, we will leave the country, 
Um, well, good luck <laughs> taking the pipes with you um, and the and the storage tanks uh, and and indeed the gas um, under the North Sea. I, I don't really think that's that's going to work. Mm-hmm. How much pushback did you get when you were investigating a lot of this? I mean, first of all, I've, you've written about Richard Branson. I've never met anybody who's written anything ex- other than in their private diary who hasn't found a letter from Branson on their desk the next day. Um, but I also got the sense in the water in the water story, that um, a lot of people were very cagey about you digging more into it. Were there any stories in particular that you had a lot of pushback? Um, Yeah, a lot of pushback, absolutely, everywhere. Um, And um, I didn't get a response from Richard Branson, but the man I interviewed who gave me an enormous amount of information, he was the head of Virgin Trains, he was sacked very soon afterwards. Um, I, I, I hope it wasn't anything to do with me. He was such a nice chap. Uh, and it was, it was incredibly helpful. That, that was the problem. Yeah, he, he talked too much. Therefore, he had to be silenced. No, I, I, I did encounter um, the full freeze of corporate PR uh, when I was writing this. It was particularly unpleasant with EDF. I mean, I, I've got nothing against the French. And I've got nothing against the French National Electricity Company. I just don't understand how it is that they ended up nationalizing our electricity company and, and, and the, you know, our own equivalent has been destroyed. And even if it wasn't destroyed, it couldn't compete in France because they, they boarded up the goalposts. But it was unpleasant trying to get some kind of response out of them. What was unpleasant was not they said no, as, as Seven Trent, the water company did. They just said, no, we're not going to talk to you. It's, it's history. We don't, we're not interested. Um, at least they said that. But EDF kept saying, every few weeks I would call out their press office and it would be a new person I would speak to. And it would sound terribly concerned. Oh, yes, yes, I'm, yes, you haven't had a response. Right, yes, I know, no, I know, I know this has been going around. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, really, that's, that's most unfortunate. I'll get back to you. Silence. And then a few weeks later, the same thing again. It's absolutely stonewalling time and time again, but in a very sort of clever way. Um, and what made it even more clever was they didn't stonewall me completely. They allowed me to visit one of their power stations. Um, so I went to this coal-fired power station, and that was useful for me. It was good. It was very interesting. The, the PR people there, sort of at a lower level of the company, were um, happy to talk to me. But I got nothing out of the bosses in London. And then I went to the trouble of hiring um, a young man in Paris for a couple of weeks to try and arrange an interview with the French government department, which actually owns EDF. And again, nothing. And I I even went to the office. I felt I have to go uh, and I went to this little, strangely Soviet little sort of booth um, at the front of this gigantic government building in, in Paris where the, um, the agency is, is based. And, of course, I knew they would turn me away, but it, it was... Um, I, I'm, I'm glad I went, but I would much rather have talked to them. And I think it would have been more... The article would inevitably have come out more in favour of them if... Uh, if I talk to them. I mean, there have been occasions when I've deliberately not talked to people on the basis that they wouldn't really tell me anything and by having to put them in my piece, I would fill it up with unnecessary words that wouldn't really inform the piece. 
when I was writing about Guantanamo Bay, I did have the chance to go to Guantanamo Bay, and not as a prisoner. <laughs> um, but um, but I wouldn't get to talk to the prisoners. I would only get to talk to the the people who were guarding the prisoners, who didn't really have any say on policy, uh, who wouldn't tell me anything about the prisoners, and would just spout a meaningless line about um, keeping America safe and the war on terror. Um, so I didn't go. Just otherwise, I would have had to to justify the trip by putting at least. 900 words in, in there, which would have squeezed out more interesting stuff. So that wasn't the case here. I, I always sought this. And it wasn't just, I have to say, it was not just the private organizations. I had a particular problem with the NHS. I, I, yes, you, I see you sighing. Uh, you probably know this. Um, I think it might have been to some extent a feature, a function of the fact that the Lansley transformation of the NHS was already underway. Um, so they were all just closing up shop, really, and, and looking for their next jobs, um, working for somebody else at, at 10% more pay, probably. But I really struggled to, to get any engagement. Uh, and I did, of course, feel as well, apart from all these other things, um, and this, these stories were repeated many times, I did feel also the sense of mistrust. Not mistrust, but incomprehension of the idea, the inability to imagine an article like the one that I was writing, where it would be immensely detailed um, and, and thorough uh, and thoughtful and not necessarily um, just uh, hostile or polemical. I think perhaps in America, where there is this greater tradition of long-form journalism, uh, and in spite of everything, journalists have more respect, it might have been easier. But here, people, the, the, the press departments of organizations, they're very much expecting a, a one-hour turnaround. You know, we can get some figures for you. Uh, or, or people perhaps writing books. Uh, but really, they're only interested in, in national press, television, um, and, and local newspapers. Strangely, the name, the London View of Books, <laughs> uh, didn't always... Open the doors that it should. Um, One day, soon. And I suppose briefly, uh, people go away and read it, or may already have done. Have you caught up with any of the kind of central personal characters since finishing up a lot of these essays? Yes, um, a bit. I, I did. Um, Pat Quinn, the um, the lady who was uh, facing eviction um, over the bedroom tax. I did have a round to tea. Um, a few months after the story appeared because the flat where I am now living used to be in the school where she went to school and so I thought that might be nice Uh, and so she came around, that was nice and for some mad reason I thought probably everything will have been sorted out uh, and she'll be fine I don't know why I thought that really mad uh, because it it hasn't uh, it hasn't been sorted out at all she's still um, in just the same situation she was before except her debts now are are even higher She's now in a situation, uh, because this is the thing, she, she had the bedroom tax hit and her disability allowance was withdrawn at the same time. Um, so now she's having to do this runaround with the... In her 60s, she's having to do this, um, you've got to apply for 10 jobs a day um, thing. You know, she's toughing it out, and I think you don't uh, grow up 
um, in the working class East End without acquiring a certain mouse. Uh, and I think, you know, it's fair to say she probably was doing her best to play the system um, and spin things out until her pension kicked in, which I think will be about 14 months now. Uh, and, and who can blame her, really? Um, but uh, it was a little bit of hope to see that perhaps this um, change to the law um, might come about in the not-too-distant future? Or has it already been shot down? Have I, <laughs> did I miss that story? There's a second reading coming up. Okay. Uh, but if not, maybe May will hold some hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I, with all these stories, I mean, yes, that, that was a personal story, but generally I'm not seeing much, much hope in terms of the institutional side of mm. things. Uh, I don't, despite the um, occasional squeaks from the likes of, Lord Miners, um, uh, I, I don't really see this sort of uh, shift in thinking in the way that people uh, are writing uh, or talking about the state of, of the country, that it, that it doesn't have to be a choice between war communism and, uh, the, um, and, and the high capitalist era of the late 19th century. You know, there are other options uh, and there need to be. Uh, because the way things are going now, the the privatizations uh, simply are contributing to this intense polarization of society between rich and not rich, uh, which we all know about and experience. Well, I'm sure everyone has some questions for James. Hi, thank you very much indeed for some wonderful articles, and I totally agree with John Natchez's comments. I mean, they're extremely valuable for our understanding of, of the current context and position. The one thing that, that did strike me there was that, that you put your emphasis, I think, on, on Thatcher and Lawson and mm. Ridley for creating this situation. And somehow the, the actual British citizen, the average person, is, is not sort of put into the, into the framework at all. And, I mean, Thatcher had this, or, or the British government at the time, had this concept of SID, you know, with British gas, privatization, mm. SID came about. Yeah, yeah. SID was yeah. the average British consumer, for the average British citizen. Yeah, um, I, I think that, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's two points there. One is about um, investment uh, and how these networks uh, and, and the companies um, or the organizations that work within them are going to be financed. Uh, and I think... There is a question there, uh, which, which I don't pretend to have answered in this book, but I've, I've sort of uh, I've raised it, which is um, if uh, all these Australian and Canadian and Dutch pensioners um, are investing in these networks, then, then why, aren't, why aren't we? Why, isn't there some way of, short, of, of uh, making a shorter route between uh, individuals in this country um, who needs to have some kind of investment for their retirement um, and the things that we are building in this country for the future? Um, so that's that is a question I think that, that needs to be higher up the higher up the agenda. Um, but the other point about the origins of um, of privatization, uh, I mean, it's it's all I can say is it's very much as a part of the book to talk about how um, that was only the beginning, that how people do think privatization is something it happened and then it ended 
Whereas, in fact, it's this, it's this shape that unrolled through time and, and things are privatized and then privatized again. Uh, it starts out as, as lots of little shareholders and then uh, American companies come in and take over and buy all these shareholders out and then uh, private equity comes in and then um, consortia of private equity come in and then sovereign wealth companies come in. Uh, it's, it's a whole series of things, a whole, whole shape uh, that is still emerging uh, and it, it's a bigger privatization than... Uh, and a different privatization to the one that the original architects, I think, intended. I mean, Thatcher herself, um, having I forced myself to read her autobiography, it's very interesting. Um, you know, she, she, throughout the, her life she was, um, and her career, she was, she was questioning and challenging and doubting the, the wisdom of this or that privatization. She, she, she was one of the first people in the Tories to be given the task of investigating whether electricity could be privatized. She concludes it wouldn't work. She was very skeptical about the idea of um, selling off council houses. She thought it didn't make any sense. It was outrageous. And, uh, she had to be talked round by, by Edward Heath. And, you know, when you go back even further, it's quite well known that she idolized, idolized, idealized um, the British Empire in India. But what I didn't know was that she actually dreamed um, as a child of being an Indian civil servant, a civil servant in the Indian civil service. And it was only when her, her dad sort of looked at her and said, you must be mad, um, that's, that's over, uh, that she realized she couldn't be. So, you know, she was in her way, I think, in the beginning, quite a Gaullist, quite a, a statist. And um, perhaps if she'd paid a little bit more attention to what the... Uh, the Alan Waters and, and Stephen Littlechilds of this world were doing uh, behind her back, we wouldn't be in the pickle we are now. Um, it's a possibly naive question, but um, for those of us who read, have read your articles and um, um, see the sand hurtling through the glass and think that this is, privatisation is happening, what can we actually do about it as individuals? We, do, we don't feel we voted for this. What do we do? That's a good question. I mean, it depends on your level of, of existing political engagement. Um, I, obviously, if you're involved with, with party activity, then you can, you can raise this as, as something that it's not too late to, to do something about. I, I think just questioning, it, it starts, um, as, as the Russians say, you know, in the kitchen. It, it, these uh, big conversations, these, these big subjects um, enter the, the discourse um, when, when people are talking about them um, around the supper table um, or, or at work, uh, and just looking at the changes. I mean, I personally find it odd that people aren't um, surprised by the sort of constant flickering change of logos on their trains um, and don't find it even more surprising that um, suddenly... The, the logo of the Dutch railways or, or the French railways is, is, on, is on their trains. You know, again, I'm nothing against the French or the Dutch railways, but um, this is decidedly peculiar uh, and surely was not what was intended when, when privatization was about. So, you know, simply um, being aware of what is going on and, and saying to people, uh, not simply, uh, God, train prices are going up again, 
But um, how come how come the French are running our railways now? When 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 did we vote on that? I don't remember that that happening. I, I think you know it sounds small and trivial, but that's how these that's how these things begin when people start muttering about it. Yes, just briefly, I'd like you to ask how much you think this mania for privatisation has gone into threatening the breakup of the United Kingdom. Because I certainly think it has. Um, I think there's a connection there. I think there's a connection. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know why this is, but uh, all these, these, so many of these big privatizations did happen in the 90s when, when I was, sorry, in the, in the 80s, when I was living in Scotland. For some reason, although I, I sort of shared that visceral hostility towards Thatcher that so many of my peers had, I didn't feel, I felt sort of somewhat removed from uh, privatization, that it, it didn't really affect me because it wasn't so widespread in, in Scotland. And also because, for whatever reason, and this is something I've never looked at, but, but it is true, that, that Scotland seems to have somehow retained more of its own uh, industry. So um, the, uh, the big, the, I think the last remaining big British electricity company is um, is in Scotland, SSE, um, and also another one has been taken over by by the Spanish. And um, the two big British train operators are both based in Scotland, um, Stagecoach and I think it's First, um, maybe not First. Anyway, the two big Scottish trains. So, and the the water still belongs to um, still belongs to Scotland. Um, paradoxically, although this idea of the menace of, of everything being uh, private, belonging to someone else, has come from England and then has contributed to the hostility towards, um, towards the Union, um, Scotland has actually remained um, quite uh, relatively insulated. And that's the, that's the case with the NHS as well. Uh, I suppose it all comes down to to the NHS, uh, and I do not blame people in Scotland. I'm sure if I lived there, I would feel the same way. I mean, we, we're not seeing the actual privatisation. We're seeing this, this sort of shadow privatisation. It's extraordinary, really, what's happened with the NHS because they've created a system now where it is not private, but it would only take a flick of the switch, and it would be. It would be as simple as that. But they know that's not really necessary because it's all being done little by little. They've got everything packaged now in commercialisable units. So yeah, I, I, I don't blame the Scots for, for fearing. I'm a foreigner who grew up in a communist country and in Western uh, Germany. And so for me, this idea that there was such a thing as a nationalised anything here is quite strange. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to sort of end on a downbeat note, but I... <laughs> I um, I, I, I was alive at that time, and it, it was no paradise. Um, and the, the myriad flaws um, in the, the British state of the 1970s uh, were all too apparent to everyone. Uh, and they were um, part of the reason that contributed to the, the swing to the, to the right. I mean, if you, I think the, the real sort of idyll, if you like, um, is of a time that goes, uh, goes back before then to the 40s, to the war. 
Um, now, I wasn't alive then. And of course, uh, I'm sure people who were alive at that time um, will, will tell me that uh, how terrible things were and how selfish people were then uh, and how rude and obnoxious and difficult. Um, it's that sort of interface between the, the war, uh, the political defeat of the man who led the country to victory, Churchill, which was um, a tremendously empowering thing for, um, for the progressive left in this country. And then that determination to make sure that the, the new country that was built from the ruins of the old uh, was a fairer place. Um, that, that period from the 40s to, um, to the end of the... Um, to the to the early fifties, I suppose, is really the kind of the root um, paradise, <laughs> difficult as it was, of for for the um, for the sort of romantic left in this country. I think everyone is aware of how difficult things were in the nineteen seventies. But in terms of how can we do this, how can we do that? In terms of community, well, it's it's a terribly terribly difficult thing, and and the, one of the great problems of socialism um, is that. You cannot organize virtue. You, you can mitigate against selfishness, um, but you can't organize people to be good. Um, some people would say you could. Uh, personally, I don't, I don't believe you, you can. And so all you can hope for is that people make themselves aware of what is actually going on and act accordingly. That's, that's quite a... A bland and bleak <laughs> message, but I, I, I think it's it's a more powerful idea than uh, than it than it sounds. And on that jolly note, I'd like to thank everyone for coming and for your excellent questions. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 